out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Christian Harris, who ran a club in the early 80s and actually went on for, I think, into the 90s, which was the Alice, um, Alice in Wonderland. Yes, indeed. A nightclub in London's Soho area, loosely based on the 1960s psychedelia and um, all that kind of exciting stuff, um, and used to feature lots of exciting bands, artists and various other people who hung in there. Plus, he also did another, well, he did a shop as well. Um, alongside the magical mystery trips, um, he brought a book out about 10 years ago, 2011 to be precise, titled A Pretty Smart Way to Catch a Lobster, still available from all good bookshops and online, probably more online than on bookshops. Anyway, look, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was, yes, the club, basically. Right, Christian, over to you. By the way, do take notes, because this is a very exciting interview. And lots of um, U-turns, not U-turns, but um, yes, episodes that you would never, never guess in a million years. Anyway, it's good. Take it away, Christian. I did, yeah. So um, <clears throat> I ran Alice in Wonderland, which was uh, every Monday night in um, Soho in a club called Gossips. So it was a sort of club within a club. Um, on the corner of Dean Street and um, Meard Street. It's now the Soho House Hotel. Yeah. Um, very, very famous building. Um, and I ran the Monday night there from um, the 10th of October, <clears throat> 1983, for just short of 10 years. Um, amazing times. Um, and that was the sort of... Um, <clears throat> That was the, the, the backbone to loads of other different spin-off things that I did. So it started with the club and just sprawled from there on, really. Yes, because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, without giving a huge amount away, but, you know, I was born in 64, so I'm sort of just over my mid-50s. So my sort of, the formative years were the kind of the early glam, glam period of the sort of 70s, very early 70s. Well, what was your sort of kind of early formative, you know, uh, childhood years and teen years, you know, before Okay, you... so I, I'm, I'm a bit older than you. Um, so I was born very late, 58. And um, the first thing I remember is like, as, as a child, the, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, um, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, et cetera, et cetera. Just the sort of um, <clears throat> pop, that was around in the early 60s, but just as a kid. Um, the first time I really got into music was um, with the glam rock music of the early 70s. Um, <clears throat> David Bowie, Cockney Rebel, Roxy Music, New York Dolls, um, Sparks, just loved the whole glam rock stuff. And did you, um, and were you, and was it sort of, a your household, was it sort of quite an interesting bohemian house, or a bit like mine, which was kind of just very working class and everyone just sort of got on and literally worked their fingers to the bone? 
Well, <clears throat> my dad worked at the BBC. He was a um, quite a quite a um, happening guy at the time, helping to move uh, television from um, film to video for the first time ever. So I was sort of not really brought up in a showbiz um, kind of environment, but I got used to being around television. And, you know, we were, as young kids, the audience in the, um, the, the kids in the audience. So right. whenever there was like a TV show, like Cracker Jack or whatever, we were always stuck there right in the, in the, in the middle, in the front row, because we all looked the same. There were six of us with only seven and a half years between all six of us. And my mum used to dress us all the same. We all had beetle mop <laughs> hairdos and matching um, shirts and for the girls, the dresses, whatever. And so we were the audience, um, sort of like rent a crowd for yes, Cracker Jack. Cracker Jack was such a sort of exciting experience. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, did you, it was. You, it did was, you have lots of pencils? I. <laughs> do you know what? I wish I did, but no, I did get a blue Peter badge. Um, oh. We were on blue Peter once, and we did get a blue Peter badge. But no, I mean, I saw people like the swinging blue jeans, Silla Black, um, Rolf Harris, if we can mention his name these days. Yes. Um, and Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, the Easy Beats, like loads of the early 60s bands. When I was like about, I don't know, seven, six, seven years old or something. So did the swinging London scene, Soho, did that slightly come into your orbit? Because obviously you're, you're in that environment a bit more than just being stuck in East Anglia looking at fields and sugar beets. What you mean now or no back then? Did you did you sort of because obviously you were sort of a bit more London cent centered? Yeah, so but I mean the swinging sixties, I was like a child, you know. I yes. mean I was I do remember going to Carnaby Street and you know buying a I'm back in Britain, you know, Union Jack badge and um a sort of poster and seeing um, Chelsea Girl and what have you and just being completely blown apart by it all but I was a kid you know I was like I don't know eight well, years old yeah. or something so yeah we wouldn't, um, wouldn't be too much but it was just impressive being on Cracker Jack and then a Blue Peter badge as well which was just fantastic yeah but I suppose I can remember the excitement of you know talk about you know our, our childhood sort of heroes Gary Glitter was hugely exciting when I was about eight so um I wanted to be in Gary's gang. And luckily, David Bowie was my first single and my first love, so I managed to uh, navigate that slightly tricky period of our, our childhood presenters who um, all seem to be a bit dodgy. Jim will fix it. Um, so, yeah. yes, it's, it was all good stuff. And, uh, yeah, so did you, I mean, did you start to, to sort of gravitate towards, you know, music and art quite early on? So, yeah. I mean, right from the start. And then all I wanted to do was go to art school, which I did. Um, I went to Watford Art School and that's when I got into punk. And I used to play in a couple of punk bands that were based around uh, Watford Art School at the time. And I played the Roxy Club and stuff like that and was on the, played in a band that was actually on one of the Roxy Club albums and um God, you know went so there were two roxy club albums and i was on the second one 
which was the farewells to the Roxy. Um, but I played, I went to one of you know, the early Roxy Club gigs, seeing The Damned and um, The Adverts, Johnny Thunders and The Heartbreakers, Cherry Vanilla, um, Eater, Slaughter and the Dogs, all the early punk bands. I just absolutely loved it. I was living in Hemel Hempstead at the time and just used to get the the milk train home, ran to the, uh, to get the last tube, got on the milk train at four o'clock in the morning uh, to go to um, college the next day. Just loved it. That, that yeah. The whole early punk thing. Yeah, it must have been amazing, especially people like Cherry Vanilla, who was um, so confident. <laughs> So, uh, so um, yes, that was fantastic. And then sort of as the 70s progressed, then what, what, what was kind of direction were you then heading towards? So that's, this is, the, <laughs> this is where it all gets a little bit odd, is that I, um, I became a funeral director. Didn't see Silence. that one coming, did not see I know, that I know, hence the board. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, would you believe it, at the age of 18, I suddenly had this bizarre idea that I wanted to have a really odd job. And so I thought, what odder job could there be than being a funeral director? So I rang up the local funeral directors and said, I want a job. And they were so surprised that someone of my age, I was 18 at the time, actually wanted to be an undertaker. Why would you do that? Mm. And I did, and I, but I actually took it really seriously. And I took all my exams and um, I trained and qualified to be an embalmer, would you believe? Wow. And then all of a sudden, at the age of 22, I woke up one morning and I thought, you know what, I'm 22 years old and I feel 72. What on earth have I done? You know, I'm supposed to be creative i'm supposed to be artistic um i i'm supposed to be a musician and here i am being an undertaker and so i handed in my notice and formed this sort of rather tacky glam rock band which we called ourselves the lollipop sisters and dyed my hair and started wearing makeup again and all of a sudden it was like yeah I was never meant to be an undertaker after yeah. all. And how did your, and just roughly, what were your parents kind of when you said, look, I've got some news after your, I suppose you'd gone to art school. So you then, did you do your foundation course or had, had sort of? So I, I, I did graphic art and design. So it was like, a, um, <clears throat> it was a sort of year long yes. course where you did a bit of everything. So I did silk screen, I did calligraphy, I did fine art, um, life drawings, uh, everything really. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, my mum kind of accepted it a little bit more than my dad. My dad, you know, he said to me, he said, um, well, what are you doing? You know, you've got a perfectly good job here. What are you doing giving it up? And I said, well, I want to work in the music business. I want to find my own way. I want to do artistic things. And he said, <clears throat> you've got about as much chance of making it in the music business as I have of winning the pools. And I don't even do the bloody pools. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, dad? You know, I love you dearly, but I'm gonna prove you wrong. And so that was it. I, after the Lollipop Sisters, never 
happened, I just came across the idea, came upon the idea of um, starting Alice in Wonderland. And it was just being, you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right idea and the right people. And it just became a phenomenal success that actually completely and utterly took me by surprise. Yes, well, absolutely. But then, you know, it's interesting the thing about timing, because having done hundreds of these interviews, you know, everyone does mention the T word, you know, you've got to be at the right place at the right time. And, and you know, I always mention this guy, Richard Strange in Doctors of Madness said he was two uh -huh. years too early for punk. So he was like there, but he's like, oh, the punk scene hasn't quite happened. We're a bit too, you know, we've kind of, we're the first people at the party, you know, eating the peanuts and making conversation. When the party gets going, we're going to be bored and going home. And because he said everybody in the audience had sort of gone on to be, you know, in the punk scene, you know, they, they, yeah. had, to, they had to, you know, somebody was asked, you know, somebody said, could you, you know, have this support band? You know, they're not that good, but they'll keep them amused. And it was the Sex Pistols and all the people in the audience were like, you know, the members of you know, the, the Clash and such like. And they all then sort of became it because by the time yeah. that punk hit I think Richard might have even been 25 or some drastically old age yeah. so, and was feeling bored and already you know because he'd already had the rejection and not quite sort of um, had launched you know it's all about launching hasn't it so then that was kind of that was interesting you mentioned that because because nine, uh, 79 Thatcher gets in then we get you know the Falkland War then we get the miners strike and then there's all these little clubs because obviously there's, there's other little scenes that are starting to flourish because you had the sort of punk, then that post-punk world, and then this kind of other, other the psychedelic, there was this kind of psychedelic kind of scene happening that uh, would like bands like Mood 6 and B-Movie. And then people like Alan McGee came along with his room at the living room and these little indie clubs. So did you, did you sort of, were you picking up on all that kind of energy that was happening? Well, I used to, um, after I, uh, gave up funeral directing and um, started going out to clubs and things like that. I completely missed the psychedelic thing, the, you know, at that time the <clears throat> with Mood Six and all of that. Um, but I was more into the goth scene at the like the Bat Cave. So I used to go to the Bat Cave, um, which was huge at the time um, on a sort of indie level. And I used to go to the Embassy Club and Camden Palace and all that sort of thing. And it was because the Batcave suddenly sort of died a death. And it was then I thought, you know, there's, there's, there's got to be something here. You know, there's got to be something else that nobody's listening to. Nobody's, nobody's going to. No, all these people with nowhere to go. And I had the idea of sort of basically mixing psychedelic music with goth, with glam, with punk and a bit of heavy metal and just create a whole scene around all these different genres of music all pulling together. So it wasn't going to be, although psychedelia was the sort of backbone of it, it wasn't only about that. <clears throat> it had to bring in all the different other um, genres that, you know, would, would, would just make something completely different and that's what we did at Alice in Wonderland. Um, yes. I, I happen to have the good fortune of uh, meeting and being introduced to uh, the doctor from Doctor and the Medics who 
um, was our DJ. And he was the magic that made that club really happen. You know, I might have been the captain steering the ship, but he was the person who, with all his garbled psychobabble that he used to spout <laughs> on a Monday night that just used to, <laughs> just people just could not, you know, stop smiling because it was just so funny, the whole thing, you know. Um, and this, be is careful. Old, this is good old Clive Jackson. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's so he... Yes, well, he was kind of a bit of a legend because he, he also was on, because there was quite a few amazing characters around that scene. Because I know their first single was on Wham Records, which was kind of started yeah. by the great Dan Tracy that everyone sort of just loves, you know, and, and for good reason. Um, so there, there were some phenomenally interesting people sort of coming together from different worlds. Because you had, like I, I mentioned, you know, Alan McGee from Glasgow, started the club and then his kind of record label even though it was quite very small at the time um but then you know you sort of you know the, like you said there was the bat cave with people like alien sex Fiend. and then i suppose you had the blitz kids with steve strange and that kind of world as well which was well, that was like, a little bit earlier of course <clears throat> right you know the whole the whole blitz thing was before uh bat cave that was the kind of as you say steve strange rusty egan um, Spandau Ballet, um, <clears throat> that was just a, a Boy George, Marilyn, that was just the bit before the Batcave that kind of spawned on from that. And then I guess the next progression was Alice in Wonderland from the Batcave. Yes, absolutely. I would say. But you'd obviously picked up more the indie world because the world that was kind of the, the sort of Blitz kids all seemed they're quite, I must admit, I, even at this age, I still feel intim intimidated when I see pictures of them because they all look so sort of on the edge and so, I don't know, with it. The face, the, well, actually the face magazine used to make me feel quite intimidated and a bit sort of um, inadequate, really. It just all looked like full of beautiful people, if you know what I mean. So you obviously kind of, did you sort of pick up the sort of the people who were a little bit more, not the freaks, but you know, the alternative scene? I think I think what it was. I mean, the blitz, the whole kind of blitz and uh, Billy's scene was quite um, cliquey, and you know you had to be in the know. You had to be one of the accepted crowd, and if you didn't fit, you didn't fit. Whereas Alice Wonderland, we never had that. You know, we we just never had any of that, and anybody that would have come down to the club um, would have been accepted. It didn't matter particularly how old you were or how young you were, or particularly what you looked like, what you dressed like. Um, we just never had that sort of typical London cliquey idea, you know, it just wasn't there at Alice London. How could it, you know, when you've got the doctor babbling on about you know, saying that um, Shaking Stevens was in the nightclub that night, was at Alice Wonderland that night, dressed in uh, disguise, and he's standing right next to you. And of course he wasn't there, but everybody just looked, looked around and saying, you know, is that Shaking Stevens? And of course it wasn't. But, that, <laughs> and, but they just laughed, because it was just so funny, you know. Or he would say something like, 
um, <clears throat> don't take a sip of your drink because it will turn you into Reg Varney from on the buses um, <laughs> and you know whatever. And everyone's like, oh, well, perhaps he's perhaps he knows something that I don't. Yeah. So it was just it was just good fun. It was really good fun. Absolutely loved it. And how long did you did you say it, this kept sort of running for nearly ten years? So yeah, it it kept running for well, nine and a three quarter years um, to be precise. But we had loads of spin off events. So after the uh, with the after the club sort of started really growing in momentum, I started doing things like all night film festivals at the Scala Cinema. Right. Um, so I did I don't know half a dozen or so of those over a couple of years. Um, every night was packed out. And then I came across the idea, more by luck than judgment, of doing the magical mystery trips, which were the um, forerunners, if you like, of acid house parties. So I came up with this idea, and as I say, more by luck than judgment, of doing something that nobody had ever done before, where you'd sell tickets for a gig that people would meet at a certain place and have absolutely no idea where they were going. And they'd be taken to this place. So the first one that we did was at Chiselhurst Caves in Kent. So everybody had to meet at um, Speaker's Corner, uh, Marble Arch in London. And um, I had hired, I don't know, 20 odd coaches or whatever um, to transport all these people to somewhere where they knew absolutely had no idea where they were going, which happened to be these underground caves where Doctor and Medics were playing. We had a disco, we had video machines, we had lasers, we had light shows. Um, and they were just mind boggling, unbelievable events. And it just grew from there. And they grew in, in size and they grew in stature. So we had, um, we hired Lowestoft Pier, I hired a former Butlins holiday camp in Clacton, I think it was. Uh, we did a, a warehouse in Battersea. Um, and, you know, like I said, nobody knew where they were going. And they were just memorable events. People are still talking about now, almost 40 years later. It's incredible. Yes. Well, Lowestoft Pier, that does sound quite exciting because, you know, I haven't been there a lot, but I know Lowestoft is quite a interesting place and I expect it's got a sort of romantic melancholia to it as well so it must be quite nice to go to a place like that and transform it well, one night. The, the, the irony of it was that of course because it was a magical mystery trip nobody in Lowestoft knew anything about it and there were of course people people coming from all over the country to go to these events and people from Lowestoft would buy a ticket spend half a day going all the way to London to meet at Liverpool Street Station or High Speaker's Corner, wherever the um, the, the trip was <laughs> departing from, only be <laughs> to be taken right the way back to Lowestoft. And it's like, oh, fucking hell, this is where I came from. <laughs> um, which is quite funny. And all the time, you know, when, I, when, when the tickets were, because in those days, of course, no internet. So people would put their postal orders or checks in the post with their in a self-addressed envelope yeah, and it's like oh my god and so i was the only one that knew where where everyone was going because i had to keep it a guarded secret i mean even the bands that were booked to play didn't know where they were going until the night before 
that's how closely I kept the secret. Wow. And so when I'm there and all the girls are in, in my shop, because um, <clears throat> that's another story, um, we're opening the mail and I'm like, oh my God, here's another one from Lowestoft. <laughs> quite amusing. Yeah. So yeah, so then the, the other follow-on was um, opening um, our own shop. So I had my own sort of psychedelic Alice in Wonderland shop, which we called Planet Alice, which opened up on the Portobello Road, then opened up another one in Kensington Market, um, Kensington High Street, and then eventually opening one in Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles. Um, so that was another sort of um, kind of part of the whole umbrella that, you know, was part of the whole scene. Yeah. So if you want to know where you're going to get your clothes from to go to to go to Alice in Wonderland, to see Doctor and the Medics, to uh, go on a mystery trip, um, well, you know, you go to Planet Alice. Yeah, it's interesting because I know that a few years later, Jazzy B has sold to Soul. He sort of did, I suppose, a similar thing, didn't he? He he. Tried, I seem to remember in the late '80s. I suppose everyone was kind of groove into that. Uh, I don't know if that song that we all listened to, God, I haven't heard it for decades, but he opened a shop and started doing fashion. So you obviously were an early kind of, um, I suppose, mover and a shaper, really, weren't you? I mean, it's interesting because I did an interview with a guy who started the Roxy, who then went on and did another club for quite a bit of time. But then he ended up going to prison for a bit because his um, bookkeeping wasn't that good. That was a bit unfortunate. And then, but but how do you then keep all this together? Because you're still relatively young. You're doing all this stuff, you know, running clubs, this magical mystery tour and the shop with lots of quite far out and wonderful people. And when you're in the moment, it's quite hard to sometimes know, you know, to keep your eye on everything. Hmm. Well, um, <clears throat> I will be perfectly honest. Um, I didn't always keep my eye on things, um, but luckily, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't tip myself over the edge. So yeah, I was living the rock and roll lifestyle, but something I don't know whether it's my background or whatever. But you know, whereas people around me uh, were failing, um, dying. Um, going off the edge, um, whatever, I somehow or other managed to um, kept, keep relatively sensible. Um, I mean, I wrote a book about all of this, uh, which is called A Pretty Smart Way to Catch a Lobster. <laughs> and, um, and it sort of tells the whole story of how, first of all, how I became inspired to do the whole thing, i.e. my kind of, dare I say, showbiz upbringing with my father at the BBC, um, my years in punk. Um, I even tell a bit about the funny stories that I had when I was funeral directing. Um, and then how I started the club, how I did the mystery trips, the film festivals, the shop. Um, and, you know, it was a story that just, to me, needed to be told. Um, and at the moment, I'm writing a follow-up. So yes. I'm working. I'm working on a new one, which is actually not really written by me, but by all the people who went on the events. So the book is called "Off with Their Heads," um, which is obviously an Alice in Wonderland kind of connotation. Um, 
And it's basically everybody's stories that they remember about the shows that I did um, and, you know, the times that they had. And it's really eye-opening because it's things people are saying I didn't even know, you know, it didn't even occur to me. You know, I did, I did a show on the night of the Great Hurricane in 1989, Doctor and the were playing, uh, Vic Reeves of all people was the, uh, an unknown Vic Reeves was the compare <clears throat> and then the hurricane blow, uh, blew up and <clears throat> I remember my journey with Clive and from Doctor and the Medics and Vic Reeves trying to get home going through you know avoiding trees that have fallen down and um, dustbin lids that were flying around hitting the taxi that we were in and so on and so forth but that was our story what I did realise, of course, there was 2,000 other people who had their stories that they couldn't get home, that they were sheltering in bus shelters with, you know, scaffold towers <laughs> collapsing around them and things like that. So it's really interesting to hear everybody else's side of the story. Great yeah. fun. Well, it's quite, I mean, having started doing this show a few years ago and then it sort of continues, one thing I did notice about five, you know, I don't know, a few, a few years back, that um, suddenly there's an awful lot of kind of people, I don't know if it's about sort of, um, I can't work out if it's kind of, it's not necessarily about rose tinted sunglasses and saying, oh, wasn't that amazing? I think sometimes things happen and then, you know, life then continues and people have to get this together and that together and, you know, have to park that part of your teen years or your twenties and, and sort of put it back there. And then suddenly, have a moment where there's a bit of space to think about life or your reflective or things, you know, people dying yeah. around you. And you sort of look back, you know, you kind of, um, I don't know, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, look in sort of your archives or your sort of memorabilia boxes and you start kind of going, oh yes, I remember this. I'd slightly forgot it for about 20 or 30 years. And sometimes yeah. it's because, yeah, like I said, you know, life has just got in the way and you've started worrying about kitchens and Ikea and children and family and your parents. And also sometimes as well, you know, stuff happens that is kind of like emotionally a bit much. So you just want to put it in a box and just put it there and either go and see a therapist to talk about it or just not think about it. But then one day you pull, pull it apart a bit and start looking and, and sort of going, oh my God, yes, I remember. So I noticed that, this is a very long way of saying it, but there's been quite a few films on, on various bands from the 80s that are really small, like The Wedding Present did had a film on their album, George Best, and The Chills from New Zealand, and The Go-Betweens and The Slits and The Dolly Mitchells. And, you know, there was Nightingale's film with Rob Lloyd that came out very recently. And then there's a couple of films going to be about Creation Records and Andrew, um, Alan McGee. So I can see that there's this kind of like a period of time, roughly about the 25 to 30 years, where things just happen. And then we start analysing and picking it over and, and almost kind of processing it as well as thinking, actually, some of it's much better than I remember. I knew it was kind of fun, but I didn't realise it was actually mm. quite so good. So it's interesting that you've also found a certain amount of that kind of going Well, I think, well. I mean, you, you, you've absolutely hit it on the, on the head there. That's, that's so spot on. I think that basically, you know, after Alice in Wonderland closed down, you know, basically it ran out of steam and we all had to suddenly start thinking about serious things like um, earning money, um, buying houses, um, having children, um, getting married, uh, uh, thinking about your pension or whatever. And then, <clears throat> then, of course, the Internet drew everybody together as well, because, you know, before before that, there was no real way of 
getting hold of people, you know, writing a letter. I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I don't even know what stamp looks like these days, let alone, you know, how much it, how much it costs. Um, so then all of a sudden, you know, with, the, with, with, thanks to Facebook and everything, suddenly people started thinking, do you know what? I remember those days and they were brilliant days. And some of the messages that I get from people, you know, saying, you know, you don't know me, but we met once, um, <clears throat> you're a bit drunk, but you know, what, <laughs> what was new then? Um, and, uh, but Alice Wonderland were the best nights of my life. And, you know, it's, it's just so warming, so heartwarming to hear what people, you know, how people remembered it so fondly. And, you know, like I say in my book, you know, I'm not saying that I was ever going to change the world or Alice Wonderland changed the world, far be it. But it was just a tiny little bit of history, a little bit of London life. Um, <clears throat> at that time, a little bit of uh, indie culture, if you like, um, that changed some people's lives and the way that they moved on from there, you know. Um, yeah. And some people, you know, had we we had I oh, we yeah we had at Alice Wonderland this unbelievable kind of claim to fame that one in every 13 bands that played at Alice in Wonderland went on to have a top 20s record. So we were a tiny little club in Soho that had a capacity of four or 500 people. And yet somehow one in 10 bands that played there then went on to have a hit record, you know, including bands like Doctor and the Medics, The Cult, The Damned, I mean, okay, The Cult and The Damned, were already established, but they hadn't had a hit record until they played at Alice Wonderland. Yes, that's um, amazing. We, <clears throat> we had all sorts of bands that played there, as well as the ones that hung out there. You know, Primal Scream, Senseless Things. Um, yeah, uh, the list goes on. Yeah, because um, if I did see that, you, did you do a bit of a business deal with one of the members of the, the Daughters of the Beatles? I did. Um, was this so to do with the shop side of things? That was to do with the shop side of things, nothing to do with the club. Um, so basically, I went into partnership with um, Ringo Starr's daughter, Lee, um, who was a regular at Alice Wonderland and also used to buy clothes from um, my boutique, which was Planet Alice. And um, we were going to be doing a boutique in London. And it was going to be a 50-50 partnership, um, but somehow ended up doing it in Los Angeles. Um, it didn't work out. And um, it's just one of life's little um, adventures. Yes. Well, it must have been very exciting. Suddenly opening a boutique in LA thinking, this is it, we've made it. Did you, did, looking back at those kind of moments, did you sort of realise, was it sort of like, God, I knew that was going to be a disaster, but I couldn't say no? Mm. Uh, yes and no. Um, the fact of the matter is, I was, I was probably out of my comfort zone insofar as um, I knew London and I knew my 
crowd in London and I knew um, where to do, how to do things, how to get things, how to, I mean, would you believe when I was painting the shop, the, so the, the shop in Los Angeles had to have all these psychedelic swirls all over it and what have you. And I could not find red paint. I, I wanted, the paint had to be red. It had to be London bus red. It had to be pillar box red and you couldn't find it. And I went to all these shops and I was like, all these paint shops, I said, well, it's red, you know. He said, yeah, we've got this red. I said, no, that's crimson. I want red. I want London bus red. Oh, well, you're not in London. I said, I know that, but you must have this colour red. Can I see your colour charts? And they give me these colour charts and there was no red paint. There's no red paint in Los Angeles. So <laughs> would you believe, and this is, a, this is a totally true story, we actually imported red paint from London. We had to buy red paint in England to bring to the shop to paint it. So I had done all these kind of psychedelic swirls all over the walls and it had this sort of planet, this sort of circular planet with all these things going on. And there was just these big white blanks <laughs> waiting for this red paint to arrive so I could fill in the, the, the missing dots as it were. Oh, that's such a strange one, isn't it? I mean, of all things. Now, two people that I've always loved, one I mentioned is David Bowie, the other one is Lemmy from Motorhead. How did, um, oh, yeah. how did he sort of appear in your life? Uh, so Lemmy was everywhere, um, <clears throat> not just in my life, but, you know, dozens of people's lives. Um, he was a regular at the club and um, he just hung out there. He absolutely loved it. Um, and he was just sort of part of the furniture, really. And he was good for the club um, and the club was good for him. And the way a lot of our punters saw it was, you know, they loved the fact that they could stand there at the bar and Lemmy was just over there, you know, just a few people next to them. And uh, but he went sort of probably not every night, but certainly every every other night when he wasn't touring. Yeah. and um, it was just part of the furniture really and but a, a, a true gent um really nice bloke and you know sad to see him go to be honest well quiet yes i know because you mentioned the senseless things earlier and i thought oh yeah that was a, another one which was a bit sad actually wasn't it the lee singer but um yeah yeah that happens so when you know with the 80s because because actually i was an, quite an indie kid so so 83 to 87 which was a kind of a glorious period for me that was also the years of the smiths and i sort of noticed you know at the time and especially looking back you know you can see how music has these kind of quite defined chapters and um and then sort of ecstasy comes in you know the smiths break out there's definitely a different scene you know the sort of 16 to 18 year olds want the next thing and that's kind of that's going to be the rave culture and then that slightly changes because then the Seattle scene comes in so you're obviously able to sort of navigate through that that kind of period because so much happened and I'm just talking about the indie kind of scene there is the kind of mainstream charts which had that kind of Trevor Horn production and the sort of the Tina Turner and Dire Straits and Spandau Valley and all that kind of you know every you know when you watch top of the pops now they've got loads of balloons big hair big shoulder pads so how did you manage to kind of keep yourself going with the, the kind of musical changes because often people don't do they what i found with a lot of bands is that they have that five-year narrative they get together 
they make a single, this is if they're lucky, John Peel gave it a play, get a John Peel session, first album, things going well, second album, a mm, bit tricky, third album, second well. And, um, and then they break up. And one of the reasons, apart from the lack of money and they hate each other, is the music kind of world has changed a bit and they're thinking, I'm just not going to be doing this anymore. And they, they jump off. But obviously you, you sort of keep it somehow sort of sailing quite kind of brilliantly, really. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there was new bands coming up all the time. Um, I mean, a lot of the bands that you were talking weren't really our thing. I mean, I have to say, um, I have a, a distinct loathing for the Smiths. Um, I, 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 I just don't get them. I, I just, and I never have. I, um, there's a little story in my book, actually, about how I was stalked by Morrissey um, because he was a New York Dolls fan serious New York Dolls fan yes, and as as I was and when I formed this band after I gave up funeral dressing so this was 1981 um, <clears throat> we were called the Lollipop Sisters and somehow or other he heard about us and he kept writing me all these letters saying you must send me photos you must send me these photos and I I, I wish I'd kept them because they'd Oof. be so funny they'd be so funny now um, but I realised who he was because for my sins as a 13 year old and as a, as a fellow serious New York Dolls fan I kept a New York Dolls scrapbook and I kept all these cuttings and I kept seeing all these cuttings of in the letters page from this bloke called Steve from Manchester and then one week he sent this um, he put in this letter saying the Ramones are rubbish and um, I posted it on Facebook and then all of a sudden it went viral. People were sharing it, sharing it and sharing it. And it had something like one and a half million shares or whatever. Um, and it actually ended up in NME where it said this piece of, um, this piece of uh, memorabilia has cropped up about how Steve Morrissey, before he joined the Smiths or before he started the Smiths, um, wrote this uh, letter to uh, NME or Sounds or Melody Maker, I can't remember which it was, saying the Ramones are rubbish, uh, which of course later he denied. So anyway, he had he wrote me all these letters, and I just I just threw them on the bin, saying you know, and in the, I, I think I wrote back to him once and said, look, I don't have any photos, and he just wouldn't give up, and he just kept writing to me all the time. So it's just, in the end, I ignored him. So when he became famous. I was just like gobsmacked. And I still, to this day, I just don't like the music. I find it dreary and I find it really boring. And I just cannot understand how somebody who loved the New York Dolls so passionately could turn out such drivel. So I'll probably upset any loads of Smiths fans out there, but hey-ho, um, that's my opinion. There we go. No, no, it's fine. I mean, it's... A, it's, it's it's one of the more tricky bands to still love, you know. I mean, it doesn't matter if one loved them or not, but if when you realise the, um, well, you know, this is how it goes, don't you? So it's, all, well, it's a bit of a strange one, is it? Like, you know, David Bowie, it's fantastic. You know, you think, thank God, it could have been anybody. It was David Bowie and he doesn't kind of let you down. I mean, okay, his work in the 80s and 90s is not great, but it's, you know, he doesn't become an embarrassment, does he? That's the main thing. No, no, I mean, he... David Bowie, you know, complete legend. Um, I, I, I gave up on him 
<clears throat> I think after station to station maybe um, I stopped buying his records but you know um, I still had I still watched him from afar as it were and and had every respect for him um, because you know he was he was one of our greats you know yes absolutely and did you I mean I know at that stage in the 80s there was a lot of that kind of festival culture going on with you know Glastonbury and Reading, did you were you part of that scene at all, Stonehenge? Did you? Um, were you definitely sort of a person who wanted to be in the city without any any sight of a tree or grass? Or well, I, I I didn't go. Yeah, don't like I don't like festival toilets. Um, I didn't go to a lot of festivals because because I ran because I had my shop. Um, which obviously had to be open on a Saturday. Um, the busiest day of the week is Saturday. So I tended to not go to festivals because I couldn't go away for the weekend. But I did go to Glastonbury 1984, 85, 86, I think, and 85 and 86. And Reading Festival I went to once. Um, <clears throat> never went to Stonehenge. Um, mm. Nearly did nearly did go to the very last one but um my girlfriend at the time was freaking out over something and refused to let me go i seem to remember but yeah yeah but i mean they were so different from what they know were what they are now i mean th in those days nobody paid to get to Glastonbury you just walk up there'd be a few students hanging around outside checking tickets and you just turn around and say oh he's got my ticket and just walk straight through them and you know you didn't even have to you know <clears throat> get your trousers ripped by climbing over a uh, over a fence you didn't you just walk through and uh, yeah. of course now it's completely different and I would not you'd have to pay me you'd have to pay me thousands of pounds to go to Glastonbury now it really does not interest me absolutely mm. no way so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm quite the same. I used to be obsessed back then you know there was a day when you just thought oh, I can't do that anymore and there's always that thing is that if I say next year I want to go just punish me I really because you almost forget the, the, the nightmare that it is and then it's like oh actually if that's your third it'll be even better next time it's like and then one day you think, no, please, I'm never doing it. So, um, yes. So what happens then with the club? Because obviously this is kind of, you go into the 90s, Britpop is kind of happening. We've had Seattle. Then we, this, this is when the club starts to, you decide to sort of wrap it up. Yeah, so um, we closed, I think it was April 1993. And um, I had basically... It wasn't that long after um, I'd come back from, um, no, what am I talking about, 1990? Yeah, it was not, no, 1991, when I came back from America, I'd basically had enough of um, London and music uh, nightclubs. I just had enough. So I decided to move to Wales uh, to breed horses, <clears throat> which is what I did. I still kept the club going for about another year and a half until April 93, but I was commuting from Wales to London, um, which would take about half a day. 
and then coming back the next day, which would take another half a day. And it just became too much, to be honest. Um, and it was, it was running out of steam. And I could see that it was, that it had its day. And I just thought, you know, now, you know, I've, 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 I've played my part. I've done my thing. And now it's time to move on. And now, you know, I'm just not, in, I'm not bothered, not involved in the industry at all now. Yeah, and the Alice Wonderland gossips is now, you know, they lost their license. It was taken over, well, it was taken over by the Soho House Group House Hotel. And I did go there. Actually, I stayed there in the hotel once. Um, I was doing an art exhibition in East London. And um, my wife at the time paid for me to, as a special treat, to stay at the Soho House Hotel as a, as a surprise. And I said to them, I said, well, what's happened to Alison Wonderland gossips downstairs? And they said, oh, oh, that room. Oh, that's the laundry room. <laughs> <laughs> so my iconic nightclub is now the laundry room of the Soho House Hotel. God, they should have a blue plaque, shouldn't they? Mm -hmm. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? That it would, would be, be very nice. nice. Do you, I mean, that's quite an amazing jump. How do you sort of go from like being on that scene, doing, you know, shops in London and LA, the club, with all these crazy characters, the thought of having a real moment of thinking, I'm going to go west and breed horses. How does, how did you sort of, how did that kind of moment happen? I think, um, you know, why did I go from being a punk to a funeral director? Why did I go from being a funeral director to running a nightclub? I guess it's just, you know, you, you do what you feel is right at the time and what where where you feel your happiness is. And I'd always yearned to be in the country and that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, what <laughs> I should have had a, a, an, perhaps a, a, an easier introduction rather than ending up in Flandari Brevi in the middle of nowhere, uh, right on the foot of the Cambrian Mountains. Um, and you know, breeding horses was just you know, it, it was just completely from from London one day to West Wales in the mountains the next day was just perhaps a um, a step too far. So then I moved to Somerset where it was a bit more. It was sort of halfway house, um, and now through changing circumstances etc I found myself going full circle and I'm now back in Hertfordshire which is where I was born all those years ago so mm -hmm. I'm now um, living well probably 10 miles away from where I was born so I've literally come full circle and now I'm working in London um, <clears throat> again you know not far from where I used to live when I was living in London so you know uh, hey ho, due to retire soon, so looking forward to it. Yes, absolutely. So just read briefly, because you do, you have mentioned it a few times. The book you decided to do the book ten years was it ten years ago? You you sort of uh, yeah. Well, I started writing. It took me about three years to write. To be honest, it was um, it was quite a a challenging um, project. Um, a you know for various reasons. To find, to remember the stories wasn't that difficult because I've got a really good memory, mm -hmm. believe it or not. And also I had scrapbooks and 
press cuttings and also diaries that told me that this happened on that particular day and this happened on that particular day. The biggest challenge I found is that A, I'm not a skilled author. So, you know, I had to somehow or other kind of make it interesting and amusing, um, which is, you know, was not my my given profession, as it were. Mm. But most importantly, trying to write and not upset people because I didn't want to upset people. I didn't, but but the people, the people, um, were were the stories and some of the funniest stories um <laughs> uh were, were not of my doing but of their doing and some of them took it all m- most of them most of the people that were involved you know took it all in 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 good stead but i did end up um upsetting a few people um, <laughs> um but hey ho you know Yes. Um, if you didn't, if you didn't, if you didn't want to be written about, you shouldn't have done it. You know. <laughs> I know it's a classic. Well, it's interesting because you know, with the doctor and the medics. I mean, that's that's an amazing story in itself. The sort of the fact that you know they had the hit single, you know, which was kind of not thrust upon them, but they sort of had that um, you know the album. But it was Miles Copeland who said, "Look, we need a single. We need, we haven't got any hits on this." So they went and recorded that song, and it kind of put them into a different league, but they're not financially in a different league at all. And then they, you know, managed to sort of keep navigating their way through life. And uh, yeah. yes, are still doing their thing, which is just a brilliant kind of, in itself, a great story. Mm. I think with, with, with you know, obviously the book you've done and the characters and, and all the other books I've been looking at and reading, you know, everyone does their best, you know, and everyone tries to survive. And it isn't easy because, because often, you know, people haven't signed the right contract or they haven't read the small print and, you know, things don't quite line up. And, um... well, I think, I mean, Clive has done fantastic, to be honest, because, you know, he he did, um, you know, he had the, the big hit single, you know, and I was very much involved with the whole medics in the early days and um, was, you know, right there when it was all going on. Um, and there was a time when Clive moved to Wales where, you know, he kind of almost turned his back on it all. Um, and then suddenly thought, Do you know what, I want to, I want to keep doing this. And um, fair play to him, he did. And even now, when, you know, during this past year with the pandemic and everything, you know, he's done, he's, he's done some amazing things to try and keep everybody still interested and saying, well, look, okay, so this is, you know, this is where we are at the moment, but hey-ho, you know, give us six months and we'll be back. And, you know, he's created his own little shows that he's doing, which is The Doctor Will See You Now, a solo performance uh, solo performance for a limited audience. Um, and, you know, all I can say is fair play. You know, he's really worked hard. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, I'm always, you know, impressed because, yeah, I mean... It's not an easy. It's not the easiest career to to um, to go and find yourself in, and and having sometimes, you know, it's a bit bittersweet when you have the big hit and not sort of go, yes, the bank balance is looking good, but it's like, oh, no, yeah. it's not actually. So, it's not e- easy, and you know, and and you know, people like Alan McGee, who, you know, obviously spent the eighties doing his bits and pieces with various bands. Some, you know, was more successful than others, and some were quite tricky, and then he hits Oasis, but then. 
he has a horrendous kind of some other drug problems so had to go to rehab so it's not easy but then you know he he's now sort of still in the game and he's looking well and he's still you know trying to you know run the label or put a label together and do various shows and also a festival yeah i mean alan mcgee you know he was um a sort of uh, a character along the way you know his thought he has a story in my book um because of course he was managing jesus and mary chain um sorry the jesus and mary chain and you know he said to me oh christian can you put on this band and i said well who are they he said oh they're called the jesus and mary chain i said oh great name i like that it sounds good and i put them on as a support act for well originally they were going to be playing with a band called jasmine minx which i oh, think yeah. is another another band on his label who had played at the club before but that somehow got cancelled i'm not sure quite why and then he said, oh, no, they really need to play now. And I think it was their first ever London gig. And they were absolutely slaughtered. And they could hardly play their instruments. They were falling all over the stage. And they were smashing up the PA equipment. And so me and the doctor um, literally threw them off stage after about five minutes. And that got them their first bit of publicity. And Alan McGee just, you know, he just jumped on it and just said, you know, he used the whole thing. And then after I said, oh, it wasn't very nice. Alan. And he said, well, you know, yeah, I know, but, you know, we're all in this together. And that was how it was. Um, we chucked Jesus and Mary Chain off stage on their first London gig. And they got loads of publicity out of it. Yes. Um, there's a little story in, the, in they've written a book or somebody's written a book about, um, it's called, something about barbed wire, uh, kiss of barbed wire, I don't know, it's a story about Jesus and Mary Chain. And they tell the story about how we threw them off the stage and apparently they threw up all over my purple trousers. Well, they didn't, and I don't have any purple trousers, never did, but if that's what they want to think, then fine, you know, it's their funny little story, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And did you, I mean, when you sat down, I suppose it was a bit later, wasn't it? And watched Austin Powers. Did that? Did that make you chuckle? Because obviously the imagery must have made you think, "My God, that that was kind of us." No, is the answer to that. That, that was just a sort of pastiche on it. Really, um, it was a bit too kind of um, groovy, you know, man kind of stuff. I think. I think at Alice in Wonderland, we were perhaps a little bit more edgy. We were. We were more. We were more gothy punk than psychedelic you know yeah there was it was it was a it was a mixture of all of it but when you see the pictures of the people that hung out at alice in wonderland they never looked like people that were in extras in austin powers you know yes quite sorry about that <laughs> but i just it was quite interesting because just somewhere behind my shoulder you know, this, there's been quite a few books come out about clubs and obviously there was the Mud Club in New York and, you know, there's some amazing pictures. And I noticed last year there was, you know, books on various other sort of punk scenes that happened in Boston, Texas and places, which was kind of, you know, that's what made me sort of you know, curious when you had written that book and then also your follow up, this, this kind of sense of people kind of rediscovering it and also wanting to archive and think actually, if we throw this away, no one's going to ever find it and remember it. So it's quite nice to yeah. archive. And I do love archiving, not just yeah. 
well, I, just I was going to say not for nostalgia, but you know, it is a bit weird. But did, did people, the one thing I did notice about New York, not New York, America, people, someone always had a great camera and they took brilliant pictures. Whereas I know there's scenes in Norwich that, frankly, the photographs are rubbish and it's never going to get much of a, however much they're going to try to sort of, you know, talk about the Jacquard Club. The photo, photos don't do it justice. Did someone manage to photograph, you know, um, Alice in Wonderland and sort of capture the sense of the place? Well, my brother, Joe, did, insofar as he had a, um, a, reasonably, good a reasonably good camera, um, single lens reflex as opposed to a Instamatic or Polaroid or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so he had some relatively good photos. Um, and there was a guy called Derek Bridges, who um, he's quite sort of renowned for uh, photographing London clubs and stuff. Uh, and I think he's got a book out as well. And his photos are absolutely amazing. And he, he I've seen some of the ones that he took at the at Alice's. Um, <clears throat> I'm in touch with him a bit. And, um, you know, he, he knew what he was doing. He was a proper photographer. Yeah. But we had so much press there, you know, when when the whole thing kind of blew up, as it were, um, it got to the point that we actually had to stop film crews coming in because I remember one night there was like three film crews turned up to film at the club. And I said, look, this has got to stop, you know, because they have like, right, you know, the club, club, the club was absolutely packed and there just wasn't enough space for all this lighting equipment wires going all over the place um and bright lights you know people were going there to enjoy themselves and then suddenly there's a bright light shone in their um face and a camera trying to you know film up their skirt it was all a bit you know too much and in the end i actually said to the this camera crew, two camera crews, look, enough's enough, can you just please leave my club, you know, um, but the photographers, yeah, they were always there, we were, you know, we were the, the thing of the moment, and we made good copy, because everybody looked great, people were dressed to impress, and, you know, so we were in all the magazines at the time, which I managed to keep for my scrapbooks and things, so those photos are great, but then, Equally, I like the little snapshots that people have taken where, you know, there's someone standing at the bar with Roy Wood from Wizards and, you know, that's the only photo yes. of Roy no, Wood yeah. from Wizards as from that. I know, classic. It was like his, um, yeah, I suppose the grandfather of uh, Glenn, maybe, wasn't he? Well, um, yeah. Well, he goes back to the 60s with the mood, doesn't he? I can hear the grass growing, which is good. Of course. So, so um, yeah, so when, exciting. So when are you hoping to have your the second book published? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's about three quarters written, if not more. Um, and, you know, people have been sending stuff in. Um, I'm still getting stories written, uh, sent in. Um, and some of them, as I say, have actually made me cry with laughter. It's so funny. Um, and some of them are very risky. Um, and I guess it's just a case of the biggest challenge is, is going to be um, putting it all together, yeah. you know, editing it and kind of 
making it flow right because at the moment it's just words um on my computer um i've got to chop and change it and that's going to be the challenging bit um so it's it's planned for the autumn fantastic we'll be looking forward christmas isn't it really that's very soon that's the idea yeah an ideal stocking filler yes and if you and just lastly if you could have said something to a 16 or 18 year old self and it's a bit tricky with you isn't it because you you entered the world of um, funeral directors you know if there was some advice you would have given that younger self who was before starting out on your club after with all these decades of experience especially running it what what sort of top thing would you have just whispered in their ear what if I was going to be doing, or with somebody else? Well, if, if you were, if you could have said something to your younger self back then, which could almost be now as well, because it's just kind of what kind of top thing would you have said? That that's a good thing. That's a good. That's just watch out for that, or just remember to keep your eye on this. I just wondered what advice if you had any, and most people do have a little bit, you know, just the old bullet yeah. point that they would just. I say. think. I think basically. I don't know. I don't know that there was because I think, you know, I had absolutely no idea how successful it was going to be. And if I had, if I had known um, on hindsight what it was going to be like. So if I knew, right, if I could fast forward 10 years and then look back, then, yeah, I would say, right, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do that. I must remember to do this, but don't do that. But. I think that would have spoiled the whole thing because it was, it would have made it too um, manufactured, and and I think the whole, perhaps the whole reason for its success was that it was kind of haphazard and it was just as it is and as it was. You know, I don't regret, you know, not saying all right, okay, so this is going to be a really successful nightclub, so I must put some money away and start a pension fund or anything like that. Of course, that was never going to be the case because it was just living for the day and living for the time and enjoying it. And I was the person that was enjoying it as much as everybody else. And I think if I had been that sort of straight-laced um, businessman that was overlooking the whole thing, I don't think the club would have worked because I think everybody expected me to be like them, you know, yeah. like having a good time and getting drunk and, and you know, dressing in strange clothing or whatever it was that we were all doing at that time. You know, I was living the dream. I was living it. And I think it, had I not been, I don't think it would have worked like it did. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think I could really change anything no well there you go right well look this is good and on your first book which is still available does that list all the kind of the magical mystery uh, trips you know it does so it's all um <clears throat> thankfully because my diaries and my um and my scrapbooks or press cuttings um i can accurately um scan as uh, scan the whole thing out so basically it is chronological um, and takes in everything um, and there's some hilarious stories um, and yeah definitely well worth a read as yes. you quite rightly said it is still available on it's amazon, on amazon. <laughs> actually it's quite good it's really good value isn't it 
What do you think I should charge more? Yeah, I think you should actually. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it's quite good. Well, sometimes with with some books, you know, I I still think they're worth it if they're self-published, but often they're a bit expensive. But it's because I don't know. It's you know, people are you know being self-published. Well, I mean, I you know, if I worked out how much time this book has has spent, how much time I spent writing that book. I would have been paid maybe one p an hour for what I've actually gained from it, and I've sold, you know, two thousand copies. However, you know, it was an awful lot of work to get there. It took me three years to do it, and it was never meant to be about money. It was just about the fact that I was part, as was all the punters that went to Alice in Wonderland, all the bands that played there. Um, was part of a little bit of history that had I not written it down would just disappear forever and the fact of the matter is that that book like any book will be in the British Library for people to see if the planet is still standing in 300 years time 500 yes. years well I think I and think... that that's why I did it yeah and I think it is valuable because I, I love those stories, you know, the CBGBs and Max of Kansas City and the Mud Club. And sometimes you just, you know, you could easily miss these kind of little treasure troves, really. And, you know, if it wasn't for you archiving it and putting it together, it would just kind of get slightly whittled down to nothing, really. So I, I'm, I'm sort of just impressed that over the last five, ten years, people have sort of are just putting things you know, in a nice archived way that we can we can access later on in life. This is why I like that and a good painting. Exactly, and and also, you know, kids coming, um, you know, kids coming, uh, kid, younger kids coming up now that were far too young to even remember it can listen, can read it, and you know, imagine themselves there. Like my niece Maddie. Um, she's well she's now 30 but um, you know she just wishes she'd been there at that time she came to the 30th anniversary um, that we did um, about um, I guess about eight years ago and uh, she just absolutely loved it she said I just wish I just wish I'd been there can you take me back in time (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that's why she and she just loved the book because you know it, it did it does give a bit of a uh, an insight to what it was like at the time as best yeah. as I can and last year I know Cherry Red Records who loved putting that compilation they did one on another club in London which I can't now remember but I did an interview with the person who ran it there's have you ever sort of put a album out or put a Spotify playlist of the anthems of Alice in Wonderland I mean <clears throat> not really I mean we put out a couple of records we did a um, a Doctor and the Medics live at Alice in Wonderland um, EP um, back in 1984, I think it was. It was just like a little um, sort of almost like a, a semi-legal bootleg. Um, did a 45 um, RPM. Uh, God, I'm showing my age now. Um, EP. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did an album. Um, which was uh, released through Flick Knife Records. That was same same type as my book um, called A Pretty Smart Way to Catch a Lobster. And that um, had bands like, well, The Damned played on it under the name of Naz, uh, no, they were playing under the name of uh, The Spooks. 
And then Doctor and the Medics played under the name of Gwilym and the Raspberry Flavoured Cats. There's a Jimi Hendrix um, sort of sound-alike band called Voodoo Child. And then a couple of other bands as well. Um, and that is still available um, on a CD. Um, and I think album, I think there's vinyl albums probably on spot, um, Discogs or eBay yeah. or whatever. Um, I did speak to Cherry Reds about doing something, or rather they spoke to me about doing something. Um, maybe, never say never. You know, I'm still friends with Frenchie from Flickknife Records, and you know we've got some tapes of various bands that played there. So maybe, maybe we will do something. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. And if you want, I can always um, send you. You know, when I do it, I can send you a link, and you can always post it on your you know social media page, which is people love listening to this. Of course, stuff. and uh, that would be great. But thank you yeah. again for this. Uh, it's been brilliant and really nice to sort of hear part of, you know, I must say the 80s, you know, I thought I'd left it behind, but actually I sort of keep coming back to it and discovering new things and interesting sort of other parts of the sort of the onion, I suppose, so to speak. So um, it was quite a decade actually, wasn't it? We didn't even talk about Thatch. I know, that's incredible, isn't it? Got through the, got through the interview without talking about Thatcher. Amazing. Well, um, we can't put any of the, we can't erase any of this. Um, you know, we can't erase the 80s, they happened. And, you know, I, 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 I was there, you were there. Um, so was many people listening to your show, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Look, well, look, have a great, um, great evening. And um, yes, a great year. And look, I'm looking forward to your second book. This, this is gonna be good. Excellent. Well, thank you and good night. Good night. There you go. <laughs> Bye. Oh, yes. Sorry, I just spoiled that, didn't I? I'm not doing it again. That's it. And I do love to leave that little spit in because it always seems so sort of apologetic and slightly fumbling. I am in English and slightly uptight. <laughs> anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Christian Paris talking about life, love, poetry and also Alice in Wonderland. Yes. So like I said, the book is out, a pretty smart way to catch a lobster and um, I don't know, just buy it online really. And yes, anyway, you get the gist because he's told you all about it. So look, if you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. If you're going to say something nasty, I don't know why you're still listening. But don't bother. I'm not interested. Um, and also, I've been archiving all these shows. And you can find the one with Doctor and the Medics um, somewhere if you just Google it. And these are all available on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. They're free. Just check them out. Enjoy them. Life is short and, uh, well, <laughs> possibly. Anyway, look, have a great day and night and tune in more because that's life. Take care, stay safe.